It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Thursday, September 3, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here with his recommendations in lockdown viewing. He's going to be speaking about three movies by director Sidney Lumet, including uh, The Fugitive Kind, Prince in the City, and Daniel. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I'll be discussing and recommending three of the lesser known movies from the great, prolific director Sidney Lamette, who passed away 10 years ago. Lamette is best known for such hard-hitting dramas, often with a political edge, as Twelve Angry Men, The Pawnbroker, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and many others. Quite generally, Sidney Lamette's best movies are characterized by his, I would say, strong direction of actors his vigorous, well-plotted storytelling, and his concern with moral quandaries and ambiguities, almost always with a strong degree of contemporary social realism, usually within an urban setting, especially that of New York City. In fact, along with both Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen, you might say that Sidney Lumet is the filmic poet laureate of The Big Apple. The first of these lesser-known Lumet films that I want to recommend today is the relatively uncharacteristic, unfairly overlooked, The Fugitive Kind. First of all, it's not set in New York City. And while not much talked about today, this version of the Tennessee Williams play Orpheus Descending from 1959 is among the very best and possibly bleakest of Hollywood's many 1950s adaptations of the great playwright's work, right up there with A Streetcar Named Desire, in my opinion, which certainly helped Hollywood usher in more adult subject matter and systematically undo the stranglehold of its self-censorship in the Hayes Code. And to that extent, in its probing of the darker side of human nature, it is very characteristic of Lamette's work in general. That is, the fugitive kind. And at one point in the movie, Marlon Brando's central character, a kind of Orpheus in a snakeskin jacket, is heard to say, there's two kinds of people in this world, the buyers and the ones that got bought. And that sentiment, I think, nicely sums up the jaundiced view of things coursing its way throughout this movie. The Fugitive Kind is reputedly the first time an actor, Marlon Brando, had ever been paid a million dollars for a movie, and it is probably the last time audiences would get to see him in his archetypal incarnation of the primal, sullen young Adonis. He was 36 years old at the time and had first fired up the screen years earlier in The Wild One, On the Waterfront, and The Aforementioned Streetcar. But in The Fugitive Kind, Brando plays the mostly soft-spoken, unassuming, if improbably named, Valentine Xavier, or Val, who drifts into a small southern town looking for work, a town where the men are seemingly all violent racist bullies and the women vindictive, judgmental 
gossips. Almost unconsciously, he causes trouble, drawing the ladies to him like a magnet, especially two disparate but sympathetic women. Carol, a dissolute aristocratic party girl, played with combative boozy gusto by Joanne Woodward, and the lonely, aging, sexually frustrated Lady Torrance, played by a sadly weary-looking Anna Bagnani, in whose local department store Val finds work as a salesman and a kept man of a kind. Brando's introduction at the beginning of The Fugitive Kind is a bravura six-minute sequence with the camera fixed in a medium shot squarely upon him as he stands before a New Orleans judge and smoothly charms himself out of doing jail time, following an arrest at a party of seemingly unutterable revelry. You know, never would Brando look so good again as he does in this movie. So smolderingly sexy as a guitar strumming figure in that snakeskin jacket. Indeed, he really prefigures Jim Morrison's leathered Lizard King persona of Dionysian liberation by just a few years and is later explicitly imitated by Nicolas Cage in David Lynch's 1991 movie, Wild at Heart. Tennessee Williams, of course, had a keen feeling for those with an especially sensitive temperament, the fugitive kind, those fleeing unsuccessfully, always unsuccessfully in the world of Williams, a cruel, uncaring world seemingly determined to destroy them. In one of the film's soliloquies, Brando's Val likens them the fugitive kind, that is, and really himself he's talking about, to a rare species of bird, a kind of bird that can never land and must always remain high in the sky, above the predatory hawks, which ultimately are fated to knock them down. They sleep on the wind, he says, and only touch the ground when they die. William's dialogue is really all very poetic, at its most poetic here, and quite memorably so. And according to Sidley Lumet, this was Tennessee Williams' great theme, what he calls the destruction of our sensitive souls, quote-unquote. Now, while the film is at times a little overwrought, and it's sometimes moody Baroque style will not always be to everyone's taste, much of the credit for its artistic success goes to the young Lumet, whose short grasp of actors, and this is always true in his movies, and natural sense of atmosphere mess, mesh near perfectly with Tennessee Williams' highly theatrical, self-dramatizing language and subject matter. Unlike the better-known Elia Kazan-directed A Streetcar Named Desire, this especially audacious The Fugitive Kind was not a box office hit. It's highly transgressive portrait of a nightmarish American small-town meanness, and one fired by internal demons and racial sexual dysfunction was a good too many years ahead of its time. And only with the rise of the 1960s counterculture and the much later arrival of David Lynch in such works as Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks would audiences be truly receptive to such films. But Lumet's Prince of the City from 1981 is altogether 
a very different kind of movie and one adhering much more clearly, much more closely to his typical kind of work. Prince of the City is something I first saw as a young man when it was first released, as I said, theatrically in 1981 and again on TV just a week ago when I was blown away by just how good it remains. Lamette really specialized in sprawling, hard-hitting cop dramas, mostly set in New York City, with Serpico starring Al Pacino being the best known one. But Prince of the City is probably my favorite among these. It follows an elite narcotics agent, Danny Cello, played here by Treat Williams, hence the title of the movie Prince of the City, who becomes part of a special federal investigative team trying to root out dirty New York City cops. Cello goes into this telling the Justice Department lawyers who run the investigation that the one thing that he will never do is testify against his ex-partners. But as the film goes on and more and more people, more and more lawyers become embroiled in the investigations and its many offshoots, that position becomes highly problematic and one that he may not be able to live up to. Especially as it turns out that Cielo has not been completely truthful about some of his own past behavior. And so this cop, who wants to atone for his misdeeds, to do the right thing, gets caught both morally and ethically between a rock and a hard place. And that is so characteristic of Lamette's best films. Which really often frequently deal with moral quandaries of this kind. There are two scenes near the beginning of The Prince of the City that really set the stage for the ethical dilemmas that Cielo finds himself in and will continue to find himself in throughout the course of this movie. One is in skimming money along with his partners from a drug bust of a Colombian drug, uh, Colombian drug gang. And the other highly ethically dubious moment involves helping to, to provide drugs to a physically sick junkie informer. Now, not especially for ulterior motives, but mostly because he feels terribly sorry for this man in the throes of an agonized and involuntary withdrawal. But then it also becomes clear that in working undercover, he's had to deal in a kind of quid pro quo manner with a lot of junkies in a similar way in order to get tips and information for arrests. So these are two instances in which Cello has done illegal and highly dubious things. And it's also what separates him from Al Pacino's completely upstanding cop of eight years earlier in Serpico. But it also makes, I think, um, for a quite darker, much more ambiguous, and certainly more complex and fascinating character as well. Which is one reason why I prefer Prince of the City to the, as I said, better known Serpico of eight years earlier. But those two scenes in particular really underscore just how far Cello has fallen away from any idealistic dreams of being a good cop, being a kind of Serpico that he started out with. So partly in re recompense, he decides to help expose 
police corruption more generally in the NYPD, to get back in touch with that idealism to become a kind of Serpico. Though the film never really flashes back to such a beginning, not that it has to. We just have to take his word for it, um, that he did start out with that idealism. Because this film is entirely set in the dark, depressed New York City of the 1970s. And I really, I really love it for that. I really love the, the hard hitting realism of, of, of a 70s movie like, uh, uh, well, a, really a kind of late 70s movie. Uh, like Pence of the City, because, of course, it did come out in 1981. But it is covering that territory. Much as Serpico did uh, in uh, being about a cop turning against corrupt colleagues. Uh, the difference, of course, as I said, being that uh, whereas the Pacino character of the earlier film was entirely upstanding and even righteous, uh, in Prince of the City, everything is much more complicated, ambiguous, and complicated, certainly. And one can't help but feel truer to life, though both movies are based on true stories. And with Prince of the City, we have a character in Danny Cello who wants, wants redemption, to atone for his sins as he would understand them. But without, as I said, implicating any of the friends closest to him on the police force. And that is a highly problematic thing. What the film shows us, and this is its great unflinching strength, is that redemption, redemption often comes at a very great price. It's not easy and is often the hardest, most tortured road that a person can take. Much harder than just carrying on with things as they've always been. That's really at the core what Prince of the City is all about. Now, Treat Treat Williams, the actor in the central role of Danny Cello, is mostly quite good, I feel, though I can't help but think that a Robert De Niro or Al Pacino himself might have been even more compelling. Nevertheless, and despite a few moments of histrionics when a greater subtlety might have been the way to go, Williams, as an actor, does an excellent job of getting under the skin of this guy, of showing us his pain. A man, a married man with children, in fact, who has the weight of the world on his shoulders and with ultimately no one, not even his wife, that he can trust. Especially as subsequent lawyers come into the investigation, replacing earlier ones with whom he had made deals, only to learn that such deals may no longer be valid in the light of his past misdeeds, and that he may in fact, may in fact, may have to turn on his former partners, those closest to him in the past, in order to save himself. One of the other great things about Prince of the City, and something also very characteristic of Lamette, is the attention to physical detail throughout this movie. That everything must have been shot on location, I think, because as a viewer, you really feel immersed in this New York world of the 1970s. It's really a movie of a piece in this regard. Everything feels quite genuine, not just the physical details, but of course, that that that, that highly characteristic Sidney Lumet specialty, the centrality of moral quandaries as well. That Lamette never goes easy with his characters, never comes down hard on one side or the other also, that there's always plenty of ambiguity, ambivalence, and mitigation to go around. 
And this is particularly evident in a multiple scene shot near the end of the film where all the lawyers who have dealt with Cello in prosecuting other cops are gathered before a judge in his chambers to advise him on whether or not Cello himself should be prosecuted for his past misdeeds, some of which have only come to light in the course of the film. How much of a mitigating factor is it that Cello knows that he's done wrong and has been trying to do right ever since? There are some figures among this legal team who believe that, you know, the law is the law. And Cello broke it, so he needs to go to jail. Whereas others recognize the difficulties that he has faced and that he has done so much to put other figures much worse than him, much worse than him in jail. And there's this debate that takes place between all of these lawyers that is especially fascinating. But I'm not going to spoil the outcome for you. You really must watch this film and find out what happens. But I love that discussion. I love that debate, how the film has been leading up to the scene and coming to grips with all facets of the argument, quite literally a moral drama in a double sense of the meaning. In fact, the scene may remind you of that much earlier Sidney Lumet courtroom drama, Twelve Angry Men, but here played out in miniature. You know, one of, the, one of the things that separates the world of Prince of the City in 1981 from our own today in 2020 is that almost all of the characters, and it is based on a real story, are male, playing real-life or composite lawyers, cops, criminals, judicial figures, etc. There are very few women in it, and that, that's really quite, quite a striking thing. Um, nevertheless, there are a lot of great character actors in these roles, uh, and I'm certain you'll recognize them as you watch the film, even if you don't always recognize the names, but you may recognize uh, most notably Jerry Orbach as one of, um, one of uh, Cello's former colleagues. Um, but even if you don't know the names, you're, you're bound to recognize the faces from so many movies and television, and collectively they really add a lot of weight to things. Um, uh, because they're not stars, they, they really help to convey the verisimilitude at work here. You know, the reality that's being conveyed in this movie. So maybe for that reason, it's a good thing that a star like De Niro or Pacino did not play the central role of Danny Cello. And because I, I think on some level that may have detracted from the emphasis on the reality of his world and ours by extension, even if one separated by 40 years. Nevertheless, I can't recommend this film, Prince of the City, Highly enough. Truly outstanding. It's the kind of hard-hitting drama that we don't get enough of these days in the movies. The third Sidney Lament movie that I want to recommend today is his 1983 movie, Daniel, which is an adaptation of the 1971 novel, The Book of Daniel, by E.L. Doctorow, about a young man, Daniel Isaacson, played here by Timothy Hutton, who, during the late 60s, attempts to determine the true complicity of his parents, who were executed for espionage more than a decade earlier. Now, this is, of course, a fictional retelling of the true story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were prosecuted and executed in 1953 by the U.S. government for providing atomic weapons secrets to the Soviet Union. Now, the story veers back and forth in time between the late 60s and the 1930s, when the Isaacsons, played by the frequently intense Patinkin, uh, it must be said, as well as Lindsay Cruz, um, 
became deeply embedded in the political struggles of the day. Um, and along the way, we get to see much of the Jewish family and social milieu of the period um, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And this is a time and place in which um, Sidney Lamette himself grew up. So it's very much a personal project with him. And as I said, in so much of uh, Lumet's films, we get a great deal of physical detail in that, um, in that uh, especially Jewish milieu of the 1930s in New York City. Um, but Lumet is also paying a particular attention to the children of the Isaacsons, especially the older son, Daniel. Um, but also his radicalized um, younger sister, who is um, a very, very much troubled figure in the film and comes to be incarcerated in a mental institution because of her difficulties, ones um, which are directly attributed to the fate of her parents. And the more that uh, Daniel himself learns about his parents, the fate of his parents, um, the course that they took in life, and the degrees to which they may or may not have been guilty for their actions, um, the more he really comes to empathize with them, especially with their strong sense of a need for justice in the world, for a better world. And he does so um, in the narrative of the, of the movie while tracking down associates, their associates, associates, excuse me, um, as well as lawyers, um, you know, among whom he finds a truly tangled web of hard feelings and uncertainty regarding their guilt. But the one thing that does remains certain the one thing that he does find is a kind of truth in their polit polit politicization, in their seeking of justice. And for that reason, the, the apolitical character that um, Hutton portrays, Daniel, um, does himself become kind of politicized. And as I said, this film takes place in the late 60s. And as a result of emphasizing with his parents' quest for justice, he himself becomes very much an anti-war figure during this period of the Vietnam War. Now, Timothy Hutton, he, he does provide a very good performance in this movie, and because Daniel himself is a very, very tortured figure, and Hutton, I think, really well, well channels um, the trauma that he has experienced, um, as did his sister, um, through his character's parents. And really, in a larger sense, I think the hard truths of American history also play out on this canvas. And I think Lamette wants us to know that they, they really filter down through the generations, and that certainly is a recurring motif throughout many of his films, and one especially apt today amid the Black Lives Matter protests. So this is still a relevant film 
And it's interesting, I think, that uh, Paul Robson's music is used throughout it. Um, and it's a soundtrack that really is done for great effect in the course of the movie. Now, as a film, Daniel is not quite perfect. You know, the narrative stalls at, time, at times, but, but the whole is definitely worth more than the sum of its parts. There's, there's a steadiness and focus to Lamette's direction that keeps it going. And as I said, it was clearly a very personal project for him, one full of really great detail from the period of the 1930s. Um, it was, however, not a box office success. Certainly among the 44 films in Lamette's 50-year career, it was a great box office disappointment for him. But despite its commercial setbacks, he, he, still, considered it, he still considered it to be one of the best films that he ever made. As do I, as do I. And all in all, Daniel is a riveting film, especially one in demonstrating the legacy of pain, I think, that, that is passed from one generation to another. And it's, it's interesting that Lumette never made a film directly about the Holocaust. But I think in this sense of, of pain being passed from one generation to another, it, it is metaphorically very much present in Daniel. Now, the final film that I'd like to recommend today is one that I watched in the course of preparing this presentation, and that is the documentary by Sidney Lumet, which is an in-depth interview from 2008 with him just three years before he died, and all of it framed in a medium shot in which, against a, a dark black background, he discusses his life and career intercut with many, many great scenes from his movies, as well as uh, related archival footage, um, mostly related to his life. That's it. It's, it's pretty much a bare bones, um, as you can get as a documentary. But it's, it's still really, really quite fascinating. Um, he would have been, I think, in his mid to late 80s at the time of this interview, um, as I said, in 2008. The film itself did not come out until 2015 and was broadcast on PBS as a part of its American Experiences program. But um, luckily, um, even in such an advanced age, Lumet was uh, still a, a highly intelligent, thoroughly engaging and enjoyable, and often very compelling presence with, with much to say, plenty to say about his art and his motivations for making the films that he did. Along with his uh, process and his predilections, we find out some very remarkable observations about his destitute childhood on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. His time, really quite fascinating. His time as a child actor in Yiddish theater and film, and the general atmosphere of growing up among radical Jewish leftists, which is, as I said, especially important to his film from 1983, Daniel. He also discusses his time at the actor's studio, where, interestingly enough, he was, in his words, thrown out for, for questioning the teachings of Lee Strasberg. And this is another theme that runs throughout um, Lamette's work. Question authority. 
always question authority. Um, the documentary, in the course of the documentary, Lamette also discusses his work in the early days of television, live television mostly. Um, also getting questioned by the House Un-American Activities Committee for his political beliefs during the, um, the, the period of the McCarthy hysteria in the early 1950s. And all of this, all of this becomes subject material for his work, for his work. Um, and he is really quite aware. Um, you know, many filmmakers, many artists are not always quite aware of the influences that go into making up his work. But I think it's quite, quite fair to say that, um, that uh, Sidney Lumet was always aware of the connections um, going on and speaks with great insights, certainly here about them. That's for sure. Now, of course, um, as I said earlier, Sidney Lumet always considered himself a New York filmmaker. And for me, he is the consummate New York filmmaker, saying at one point, you know, you take me out of New York and my nose starts to bleed, quote unquote. He also says it's one reason why he never made a Western. Uh, he gives plenty of examples of, of how he enhanced, I think it's fair to say, and embraced every aspect of the city from the sleaze and the slums of the pawnbroker in 1965 to the grit of the theater world and the spectacular penthouses of Park Avenue in his movie Starstruck. He also expounds upon his interest in justice and morality, particularly in relation to a very shocking incident that he witnessed as a young man which is an anecdote that fascinatingly frames this documentary. It begins and ends it. And if there are defining themes that unite most of his work, he says, it was the price paid by the children for the passions of the parents and the corruption of the American dream. Almost every lament film, from 12 Angry Men to Network to Running on Empty, is about the importance of fighting authority to preserve your own conscience. And that is something that really shines through in this documentary, which is a fascinating, thoroughly fascinating look into the mind and morality of this great director, Sidney Lumet. A memorable chapter in the history of movies, for sure. That's the documentary by Sidney Lumet, which is available to watch on the library streaming service, excuse me, Hoopla Digital. The Fugitive Kind, Prince of the City, and Daniel, three of Sidney Lumet's best films, if relatively little known, are all available as DVDs to borrow from the library. And both Prince of the City and Daniel can also be streamed for cost on YouTube, Apple TV, and Google. Okay, folks, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope that you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next time for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content 
into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.